Hello, and welcome to episode 101 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, policy analyst, criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. Today's episode is my interview with my friend, Reuben Jonathan Miller, about his new book, Halfway Home, Race, Punishment, and the Afterlife of Mass Incarceration. Reuben Jonathan Miller is an assistant professor at the University of Chicago Crown Family School of Social Work, Policy, and Practice. His research examines life at the intersections of race, poverty, crime control, and social welfare policy. His new book, which he is here to discuss with me, Halfway Home, Race, Punishment, and the Afterlife of Mass Incarceration, is based on 15 years of research and practice with currently and formerly incarcerated men, women, their families, partners, and friends. This is Ruben's second appearance on Decarceration Nation. Ruben was my guest during episode 43 when we talked about his work on carceral citizenship. And even though he has since moved to Chicago, he will be forever a member of my church congregation. Welcome back to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Ruben Miller. I'm so happy to be back. It's, it's, it's good to be in conversation with you again. Yeah, it's great to talk to you too. Um, I usually ask the same first question, which is an origin question. Uh, but since you've been on the podcast before, and your book is in many ways the story of your own journey, let me ask instead, could you explain the story of making or writing this important book? Yeah, no, happy to. Absolutely happy to. Um, so I the... the I suppose I have to tell some of the origin story to, to talk about writing the book. So, so I, the I I began work as a volunteer chaplain in the Cook County Jail, uh, and I did that from 2003 to 2008, largely because of an ethical commitment. Uh, scripture, uh, Matthew 25: uh, When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? When I was sick and in prison, did you visit me? Um, and that 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 scripture touched me, and so and so I started doing prison ministry. Uh, visiting Cook County Jail a couple days a week for the greater part of uh, five years, uh, and and that was really powerful and important and formative. I wanted to be a better chaplain because I thought that's what I wanted to do for a living, and so I went to social work school to learn some clinical skills to 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 help uh, to add some science to the to the spiritual counsel, if that makes sense. Uh, and and uh, and got was just struck with really the 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 structural arrangements that I think I that I noted as I moved through the space the, the the demographic profile of the jail the the fact that people who I grew up with and went to the store with would, would show up over and over again in the jail the fact that people who were themselves religious has had similar ethical commitments were educated and not really a, a, a while while a disproportionate number of the group were poor and black uh, born into neighborhoods like the one I grew up in, there were folks from 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 who who had the same who were doing the same kinds of things I was doing, of course, uh, and 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 other people too. So anyway, the point is that um, I didn't know anything special. <laughs> there, was, there, was, there was there was nothing uh, uh, more ethical or more moral than me uh, than any of the brothers uh, uh, who who I was spending time with, and so and so I wanted to understand. Um, uh, the conditions that produce the situation in which people like me, for example, will move in and through this place. And so I ended up doing a PhD in, uh, in, in sociology study and mass incarceration uh, and, and, and started doing research. Well, while I was working as a chaplain, I met my father, who I learned had been incarcerated for 20 years. Uh, and then while I was doing research for the book uh, that we'll talk about today, my brother was incarcerated. Uh, he was locked up. And so I studied people uh, coming home from jails and prisons, families visiting uh, and caring for people uh, who were moving in and out of jails and prisons and police station lockup facilities uh, while I was caring for my brother uh, who was moving in and out of uh, jails and prisons at that time. So that's 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 how we got to the book. And that's that's why um, I decided to write the book uh, in a way that included my life, my experience, the life of my family, people who were very close to me, who I grew close to while conducting the study, people who became friends with me over time, um, because all of us uh, born poor and black, uh, especially poor and black in this country, but also poor whites, uh, born uh, after, uh, mostly after 1972, but really uh, who were working age also uh, in that moment, 
um, might be considered something of a mass incarceration generation. And so I included them and I included me uh, uh, because I wanted to be honest about, about how the thing worked. Yeah, I know this was true for me, um, but for many people returning from incarceration, one of the first things they do is write a book. Do you have any advice now that you've been through the process and gotten a lot of good press and, you know, uh, done an incredible job, I think. Do you have any advice for people coming home and how they could navigate writing and publishing best? Uh, so it depends on how they want to publish. And, and you know, there, there, there are a few routes into publishing. So one route is um, self-publishing, of course. And another would be uh, publishing on a trade press or a trade house, uh, um, an established commercial press like I did. And the third route would be an academic press. Um, and so each of those have different, you need different strategies for them. For, for all of them, you want to share your work uh, with people you trust and 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 find somebody who, who can edit. <laughs> you know, getting a good editor, that's, 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 that's the main, uh, most important thing. There's so much more than just fixed typos, though that's central, that's, that's key, right? Like you don't want to put anything out that, that has problems. But for uh, a commercial press, you need a book agent. Um, and there, there are certainly listings of agents. And the agent is the, is the way into the big houses, you know? Um, without an agent, it's really hard uh, to, to, to get, a, to get uh, the door open uh, into, a, into a big publishing house. And so you want to get an agent that understands you, that, that gets the project that you're pitching, uh, that, that cares about, or at least feels like they get um, the things that you care about. Uh, and for an academic press, you write the academic press yourself. You send a proposal. Uh, there, there, there's some barriers if you're not a traditional academic, uh, but sometimes if you're a practitioner, um, if, if, for example, you're somebody who does work with formerly incarcerated people or, or with anyone for that matter, if you're an activist, you have something to say that, that contributes to uh, scholarship, um, then an academic press might be, might be an interesting home. Uh, the, the proposals for academic presses are typically on their websites and, and, and you, you pitch those to an editor. So, so three different paths, uh, three different strategies uh, to, to make it happen. Uh, you know, as we kind of turn toward the book, uh, there's one thing I noticed. There's one person who gets quoted probably more than anyone else throughout the book. Can you talk a little bit about the influence of the late, great James Baldwin as a character, as a reference, or maybe as even a ghost kind of haunting the writing of Halfway Home? Yeah, I mean, James Baldwin was a muse for me. Uh, and and there the, 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 the two major quotes from him, one from his iconic talk to teachers, uh, and then there's another that shows up uh, in the in the appendix, which is really him during a Q&A session uh, where he's addressing the, the, the Caribbean uh, Student Association in London in 1969. And they, they ask him, you know, what's the future of the black personality? And, and he gives this beautiful discourse on on what it means to free yourself of the checks and balances or to even be shackled by the checks and balances of the larger society the Western society, what he'll, what he'll talk about is a kind of European Christianity. And so um, James Baldwin is, is, is powerful and important to me. Uh, I took him and Nina Simone in the book as, as, as muses to help me think through, make sense of uh, uh, the, the, the situations I, I was examining. And I would refer to his work and her work um, throughout. You'll see references also to them in the chapter titles. Um, for example, chapter six, Chains and Corpses, is a chapter about death and, and, and how people reckon with death. And that comes directly from James Baldwin's letter uh, to Angela Davis in the opening line where he writes um, something to the effect, I'm going to do a poor paraphrase, but he says, it seems to me that at this point in history, um, the sight of chains on black flesh would cause us to rise up and rip off the shackles. But no, we glory, we find safety, we glory in chains, we glory in chains and corpses. He writes this in 1971, <laughs> you know, <laughs> on the, you know, so or at least it's published. And it got uh, much so, worse after that, unfortunately. <laughs> so, so, so much worse. But, you know, when we think about uh, mass incarceration, a part of the mass of mass incarceration, of course, is the scale. The other part of it is the concentration. 
And so, and so the mass and mass incarceration is, is the concentration of incarceration uh, in and among poor black men specifically, uh, but poor black people more generally, so much so that um, we can think about arrests as something that, ha and incarceration as something that happens to groups rather than something that happens to individuals. Like that, that's, the, that's the definition of mass incarceration from James Garland. On the one hand, it's the scale, it's the growth. On the other hand, it's the deep concentration. And, and, and Garland was thinking about, uh, the, the sociologist David Garland was thinking about the poor black men who were being run into prisons uh, after 1972, when we go on this 27 year, this 27 year experiment. So anyway, the point I'm trying to raise here is that the scale is incredible, but the concentration, the disproportionality, let's say, uh, uh, the, 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 the looming fear of policing and incarceration uh, and the concentration of incarceration among black people is not new. Uh, du Bois notes in the Philadelphia Negro, there's a, there's a section where, where, where he's looking at uh, the archives in Philadelphia, and he finds as early as 1619 that black people made up 5% of the population in free Philadelphia, but were a quarter of the prisoners. You know, uh, uh, Tocqueville uh, and Beaumont, who, who, who write on the penitentiary system, the reason why Tocqueville comes to the United States to study the penitentiary and, and, and talks about racial disparities in prisons in that first uh, 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 book on the penitentiary system. You sent from France to look at uh, the U.S. penitentiary system because uh, US, the U.S. penitentiaries were, were, were models of, of, of reform. <laughs> and, and, and he notes the racial disparity in, in there. So, so this is, anyway, my, my, my point is that um, racial disparities in, in, in the criminal justice encounter, what we now call criminal justice contact, disproportionate criminal justice contact uh, among black people in this country and among people who have been otherized. Uh, uh, so, so Asians who are being arrested for, for so-called vice crimes, sometimes those vice crimes, those so-called vice crimes would be things like owning property or laundry <laughs> in, in, in California. Uh, 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 people who we now call Latinx uh, 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 being uh, uh, carted off at, at, at crazy rate, rates as, as, as we pushed West, uh, held in jails and prisons, Black folks at every moment uh, being held in, in, in jails, barracoons is what we call it uh, uh, during slavery. Uh, uh, and, and, and that whole relationship being a relationship of capture, the disproportionate uh, contact of minorities, people who have been minoritized, has always been there. The disproportionate contact of Black people specifically um, has always been there, always been egregious. Last point on this, uh, you know, it's interesting if you look at um, uh, rates of capture uh, and don't think just about jails and prisons, uh, in, as we talk about this idea of mass incarceration, if we, if we open it up a little bit, we think about capture, the criminal justice system taking hold of and putting to use example, uh, black people, if we think about convict leasing, which which was probably the place that folks thought I was going to go, you're right. Um, <laughs> we see a tripling of the of the number of convicts. And this, I think, is super apropos to what we're talking about right now. The number of people who so-called convicts, people who've been convicted of a crime, they might have been sent to a chain gang, they might have been leased out to companies, not necessarily held in prisons because that wasn't the, the, the main mode of capture in that moment in time. But from emancipation in 1865 to 1890, if you look in the South, you see a tripling of the, of the, of the convict population uh, in, 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 in Southern states. I've argued in my academic writing that that's a form of mass incarceration for sure. Um, but but the point is that the point is that the targeting the, the the is while the scale is new when Baldwin puts his finger on the targeting chains on black flesh he's uh, when he puts his finger on the targeting of, of of this group of people who we've decided that we're afraid of uh, he's 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 calling on a really long history. I mean, so you know, you mentioned the almost a direct line of. Uh, Historically, um, Du Bois, Tocqueville, uh, Jim Crow, every, you know, the whole thing. And yet we kind of find ourselves kind of constantly in political moments where people try to make uh, things almost like even claiming race is important seems to be controversial when, you know, the the fact is that it, it would be impossible to walk into a jail or prison and not see uh, the racial disparity, you know, part of your book is about this kind of reckoning, this kind of coming to uh, to change hearts and minds. So 
as part of that project, how do, is there a way to have that discussion where it doesn't always first become politicized in ways that are almost comically sad? I don't know. We need to, we need, we need to, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, we, we need to, we need to have the discussion honestly. So, 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 so the honest, the, the fact is black people are four or five times more likely to be incarcerated depending on which year you look uh, than, 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 than white folks who committed the same crime. The fact is, Black people are twice as likely to be. The fact is, uh, uh, black people do more time when they are arrested. 10% longer sentences for the same crimes that white people commit in state penitentiaries. 20% longer sentences in federal. So that's a fact, that the disparity is really there. But, but here's the linked fate part of this argument. What you've done to my children, you've done to your own. You being general, the U.S. society. My being mean black people. I'm black. Uh, for, 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 your, for your listeners, um, black man born poor after 1972 in this country, which is why I wrote the book in the way that I wrote it. Um, it part, part of the reason why I wrote the way that I wrote it, um, you know, to try to have an honest reckoning with my own history so that we could have an honest reckoning with, with our, our history. But, but the point I'm trying to raise is, you know, there are nearly a million black people in an American jail or prison, and there have been since the 1990s. Um, there are nearly a million white people in an American jail or prison right now. The disparity is egregious, is awful, is incredible. Between 38 or 40 percent of, 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 of the prison is black. Between 33 and 38 or 39 percent of that prison is white. One in eight white women has a currently incarcerated loved one. Half the country has a family member who's been locked up. So, 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 so race our racism, we're so racist that we think that mass incarceration is a black problem, so much so that the politicians, you talked about the comical, the, the sort of caricature of it all, the, the comical nature of it all, the, the, the blunt object wielding nature of, of how we think about race in this country. We're so racist in this country. That, that we think criminal justice reform is for black people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, 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 like that's, how, that's a part of how racism works. But, but, but the truth of the matter is, while black people are disproportionately impacted by this joke, 38% of white boys, and I do mean boys, will be arrested before they turn 23 years old in this country. What have we done? When the group that we think is preferred, we throw in a cage with the group we're afraid of. There's a problem in this country that we have to reckon with, and it's not just a problem for black people on behalf of black people that will only affect black people. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, I could probably just talk about that last five minutes uh, for for the rest of the time, but there's so <laughs> many different things that you cover cover in the book. You know, I think one of the things you summarize very well is the specter of collateral consequences. Uh, you wrote in Michigan there are 789 of these laws in Illinois. There, Illinois, excuse me, there are over 1,400, including more than a thousand employment regulations, 186 policies that limit political participation, 54 laws restricting family rights, and 21 housing statutes. In most states, this means people with criminal records may not hold public office or live in public housing. They can be fired from their jobs on the whim of their employers or have their applications for apartments denied, even when they have the job the credit scores and the references to qualify otherwise. In some states, they may not be allowed to vote with few places to work or live in fewer uh, ways to change the circumstances they face. They still may not qualify for food stamps or student loans uh, to go back to school and improve their living conditions. They may have to give up their parental rights. They certainly may not adopt children or even live in a home with a foster child. They may not be able to leave the country, and for some crimes, they can't even leave the state. It doesn't matter that they finished probation or that their incarceration was decades ago. They can still be rejected, and there's nothing anyone can do. I'm not really sure uh, how to take that as I'm one of the people impacted by that, but what some philosophers have called hauntology seems very present throughout your book. You are suggesting that people never make it more than halfway home because of the ongoing specter of a conviction. Uh, that this might be the longest question I've ever asked, but would you like to talk about this? <laughs> would you like to talk about this more? Uh, so, Josh, I, one, I appreciate you engaging the book, I, and I and I, I deeply appreciate the work that you've done on behalf of our, our brothers and sisters who are locked up, and, and those who are home and, and who are looking for some semblance of freedom. Um, yeah, the, the the point that you raise is the central point 
that I'm trying to raise in book, which is prison follows you like a ghost. And the question is, is that fair? This this is the this is this is this is the question for us. You know, does one ever pay their so-called debt to society? In fact, there's a there's a section chapter the, the second section of the sorry, the first section of the book is 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 is, is, is called debt for a reason. You know, the it, it it's it's challenging the idea that that the debt is something that people are able to ever pay off. It challenges the idea that um in some cases um the the debt is a reasonable one. Uh uh uh, and so, and so, these laws, policies, and administrative sanctions effectively produce an alternate form of political membership for people with criminal records. And because one third of Americans have criminal records, and of course, uh, the kind of criminal record matters. And so, somebody who's convicted of a misdemeanor offense doesn't have the same kinds of barriers uh, that, that that someone who's been convicted of, uh, you know, uh, a, a class a class. Uh, Class X felony, Class X in 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 my state is reserved for the most serious of felonies. Um, uh, you know, the, the the barriers are different, you know, for different people, but not once you get past that that felony designation. Certainly not once you get past the quote violent felony designation. Uh, and so and so the question is, what punishment do we think? One question could be, what's a reasonable punishment for a crime? When when has one served it? Should punishment be for a lifetime? Should punishment be warranted at all for the things that we punish people for? These are questions that I don't think that we're, we're currently asking ourselves. All the discussions on criminal justice, um, you know, don't, I, at least the ones I'm privy to, don't don't start at this place of asking, is it reasonable to to punish at all in this moment? What is a reasonable punishment for this? crime uh outside of like drug offense you know that's that's the thing that's gotten some attention but when we get to questions of violence when we get to uh, even to some extent property crimes uh, you know stealing and stuff like that like we're not we're not we're not thinking about those 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 crimes in 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 ways that i think um we need to so i don't know i i, I feel a little rambly <laughs> i feel I, <laughs> I, I, I hope your edit button works well <laughs> this, oh it's <laughs> Yeah, I, I generally like to get uh, people's feelings regardless, you know, of how, you know, I, I think it's good to get people's kind of natural flow on these things. Uh, you know, you make mention of Michel Foucault concluding that we live in a conventional society. I think for many incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people, we feel like anytime we want to say anything in public, we have to engage in an almost constant process of confession and apology just to get to say what we originally wanted to say. What do you think all this kind of reveals about our society? And do you kind of cover, I feel like this is a part of the book too. You know, the, there's a, an idea that I introduce um, a little later, I think in that chapter, I call an economy of favors. Um, and in an economy of favors, two things have happened. On the one hand, uh, we've locked people out of the labor market in the ways that you've mentioned, out of the housing market, out of most forms of civic participation. Of course, there are a number of formerly incarcerated activists who are pushing us in, in all kinds of interesting ways, and that is civic engagement. Um, but I mean, uh, through things like elected office, sitting on juries, uh, uh, and, and, and the, the kinds of forms of, of civic participation that, that we most associate with bringing about political change, social change, uh, that, that, we con that we consider uh, 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 important to to make the world look in the ways that we'd like to make the world look. You know, we've done all this work to lock people out, and at the same time, we we've we've uh, interpreted liability law in in such a way that uh, landlords, employers, and even well-meaning helpers, family members, and friends who want to help people with criminal records say, "Let them sleep on the couch," or a social service provider who wants to provide a set of services. Well, uh, if a social what we've done is we've interpreted liability law in such a way. Um, that that we not only hold people who want to help responsible for the crimes of the people that they help, um, but that we punish if they offer them help. So the grandmother, uh, because of changes in housing policy, a grandmother lets her grandson sleep on a couch when her grandson has a criminal record. Uh, because of changes in in liability law, uh, social service providers who who provide services. Uh, for uh, particular classes of felons, so-called felons, um, lose their, their insurance 
or, or their licensing. Uh, uh, employers uh, who 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 employ people with records uh, can be sued. Uh, uh, landlords who who offer a place to stay for people with criminal records uh, can can be sued. Nuisance ordinances. Uh, uh, they can suffer reputation loss, etc. So the stakes are high to help people with criminal records. So what we've done is we've created the situation in which. Uh, we've made people with criminal records need the help of others to meet their basic human needs. At the same time, we punish people when they help them. And so the person with the record has to do this dance to convince people to help them. Uh, so, so if I want to rent an apartment, I not only have to show you the credit score, that, that, that's right, and, and, uh, that, and my employment history, you know, offer some evidence that I can afford the apartment that I will pay on time. Um, because a background check costs $30 and, and all you need is a debit card, the, the, the landlord has access to the fact that you've had a criminal record. So now comes this dance where you have to explain to the landlord that you were lost, now you're found, you were blind, now you see you're a really good person and they should take the risk of helping them. They should do you the favor of renting you an apartment that you qualify. The employer must do you the favor because you've done, you know, you're doing this dance to convince them you're really a good guy. You've changed your ways. That was a hundred years ago. That was last year, but you but you did counseling and, and, and deep soul searching. You know, these 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 deep explanations uh are required, required by 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 people who have the resources to help lift someone who's struggling out of out of their struggles. And in fact, they're required on legal paperwork. You have to show that, that that you've gone above and beyond the call of duty to get out of jail. When you go before a probation board, when you go before a parole board, you have to talk about your good, the good things you did in the prison, the programs you pleaded, how you're this great guy, how you've taken full responsibility for your crime. Forget the fact that you've done all the time that was required of you. Right. Like you, you've, you've passed that minimum uh, release date. You're beyond that by about three years. You still have to go before a parole board and talk about how you mentor people inside the jail, how you've completed all the classes that, that people asked you and did classes that people didn't require of you. OK, so that's that's to get out in the first place. Then you get out and the landlord and employer wants to hear all the same kinds of things. And only jobs that are available to you are the ones that offer the best social mobility, I should say, because it's not the only jobs. And people find, find all kinds of ways to make it. It's just, it's just more difficult than it is for other people. Uh, the, the most jobs that are available to you, the ones that, that offer a sustainable wage, the ones that, 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 that are most likely to help lift you out of poverty are jobs in service. Jobs where you help other people. Yet another redemption story. <laughs> so, 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 so we require, we require this redemption story uh, uh, from people with criminal records in the labor market, in housing, uh, uh, we require them to put their bodies on the line to help other people. We require them uh, to, to 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 engage in in care work just to meet their basic human needs. And and I think that's a, a comment on 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 the world that we've made. I think that's a comment on the world that we've made. Yeah, uh, another thing that I thought was interesting. You know, we hear all the time the saying, "We're a nation of laws." And I, I think we rarely interrogate how that actually functions. And I thought there was a really interesting part of the book where you talk in particular about John Stennis and kind of even in a case with a good result from the Supreme Court, the rewards kind of overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly uh, were doled out for the people who are on the wrong side of it. And I, I think our friend, our mutual friend, Peter Linebaugh, has referred to this as kind of ha uh, lawless law or how law can function in lawless ways. Uh, what has this uh, kind of journey and research taught you kind of about law and justice? I, I very much appreciate the question um, that the laws are applied selectively. Uh, and 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 it's very important for us to think about the people that we're afraid of, the people who we want to throw away, the people that we don't care for. You know, James Baldwin, back to Baldwin, uh, you know, uh, has this great line. He says, if you want to know uh, not whether or not there's justice in a country, but whether or not there's any love for justice or any sense of it, you look in a jail or prison. <laughs> he, says, he says, ask any black man, ask any Puerto Rican. How they how 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 about their experience with justice, and, and and you'll learn whether or not the country has any concept of justice or any love for it at all. You know, um, 
but so 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 the, the, so it's important. What I learned, what I've learned, that it's important for us to pay attention to uh, the folks we're we're most likely to throw away, the people that we're most afraid of, the people that 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 we've learned to not pay attention to. Uh, it, this is the group to 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 write law and policy for. This is the group to think about when we think about the protections, whatever the protections of the law are and are and are supposed to be. This is the place where the breakdown happens, you know. So 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 if I go and get a job, I don't have a criminal record. If I go and get a job moving asbestos, my employer doesn't provide me with protective equipment to do that. I can sue that employer is responsible for ensuring my safety. The question is, do, do those same protections hold when the person removing the asbestos is a person with a criminal record? Even if they hold in theory, do we pay attention when the person when the person with the criminal record complains? And we don't because we think they deserve whatever it is that they get. So what I've learned is law on the books is one thing. Law in the street is another. <laughs> These are things, of course, that we all know. Uh, right, but 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 the but 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 the 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 research put this in in such sharp relief. The difference between what we say and what we do. That's on the one hand. But I also learned there are different laws for different kinds of people in this country, and the criminal record is one mechanism to get around all of the protections, to get around all of the rights uh, 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 that, that 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 we think American citizens enjoy, and we pay no attention to it, despite. Uh, so many Americans being connected to people with criminal records, again, half the country has a loved one who's been to a jail or prison, pay no attention to it because of this work, moral work that we do. We presume someone who's, 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 who's broken the law, one, has broken the law, that's part one. Two, that that law was just to begin with, to echo uh, dear Brother Peter's uh, comments, uh, 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 and, 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 and three, that they deserve <laughs> what they've gotten. Uh, you tell a particularly disturbing story about your brother's journey. One part of that story was about how he formed a legal strategy based around a particularly good attorney who was, at the last minute, replaced by a particularly bad attorney. I can only <laughs> imagine how painful that was for him and for you. Uh what about this notion that justice frequently becomes kind of procedural in a way that prevents... Uh, you know, intended outcomes or good goals or justice at all. I mean, the the, the devil's always in the details. So, you know, to give you an example, uh, public defenders are supposed to be free anyway. This this is this is this is one additional example of it. Public defenders are supposed to be free. My brother was who was considered indigent in Michigan, and he should have been. He didn't have work, I and mean, he didn't. And of course, he couldn't get work because he had a record that that, that prevented him from getting work. But, but anyway, he's considered indigent in the state of Michigan. The state of Michigan sent him a fee of, of $600 representation by the public defender. Where do you get $600 from if you don't have a job? How do you cover the costs of, of, of that attorney that's supposed to be free? So, so, so the Supreme Court has ruled that, that, that everyone, including people who are indigent, should have access to a, a, a legal representation. About 34 states in our union charge people for that representation. And legal fee is used for a reason to restrict you from being able to do other things. Uh, you haven't been able to pay this legal debt in Florida. It means you cannot vote, for example. <laughs> right? So, 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 so this, this is one of those examples of, of, of the devil being in the details. The, the, the devil being in the details. The administration of law is so uneven. So that the, 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 the case that you bring up from the book, the, the example that you bring up from the book, uh, Really has to do with the skill of 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 the attorney that you get, which 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 speaks to the situation that you find yourself in. So so let's say you've broken a law or you haven't. Let's say you're an innocent. It really doesn't matter on some level for for this example. Let's say you go before uh, an attorney hoping to be tried by a jury of your peers. Let's say you have a prior criminal record. In most states, the people who judge your case, the jury, the so-called jury of your peers cannot have a prior criminal record to be able to sit on a jury. One cannot be, you know, convicted of a felony in many states to be to, to have access uh, to, to be in the jury pool, for example. 
So you go before people and you try to explain to them this redemption story that we talked about before. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. I wasn't at the at the bank robbing it. I was at the church. And nobody understands because nobody's been in a situation where they've had to pick themselves up after a criminal record, dust themselves off and find a productive way to live. In other words, nobody understands because you're not before a jury of your peers. You're before a jury of people who've never had an experience like you've had. This is one of those examples of the law gone awry, an example of the law having having uneven administration, an example of the law itself being variegated and applied differentially for different people, an example of holes in which uh, uh, people fall into all the time where they they don't have the same protections of the same laws that other people that other people might have. Uh, you know, I think one thing that people uh, who aren't directly impacted may never really get the full picture on is kind of the just incredible strain on families that incarceration uh, creates. Uh, you know, you talk a lot about the cost of staying in contact over the years with your brother. Uh, you know, you tell the story of paperwork preventing you from visiting your brother. Uh, I know people who drove all the way uh, to the UP, which is way up upstate Michigan, to see an incarcerated loved one, only be told there would be no visitation at all for the weekend, and they probably drove eight hours to get there. Do you have any more thoughts about how cruel the system is on families? You know, it's interesting. It's 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 uh the overall thought that I, that that I have about this is, is the general state of precarity that we that we insist people with records and their families must. So in in the example that you gave, you know, I study jails and uh, you know, and, and 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 people who move in and through them, and 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 family life and stuff like that. And I've visited dozens and dozens of prisons, like like you have, you know, I've mm -hmm. I've. Uh, time with dozens and dozens of families like like you know hundreds of people literally as as as, as you have as, as as an advocate who does powerful work to, to to change the laws and policies in our country to make them more just more fair less racist less harmful uh, uh, more equitable bring about the, the you know the kind of world that we that we want um, and I appreciate that work but I, I've, sp I've spent time with hundreds of people hundreds of you know dozens and dozens of families literally hundreds of people and been to many 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 different kinds of Jails and prisons, group homes, you know, uh, uh, halfway houses, uh, workforce development centers, work release places, you know, just the many, 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 many kinds of cages that, that we construct. And uh, and can't check every box, man. <laughs> There's so many boxes to check. I didn't know that there was a I had access to visit basically any prison in the state. I had already been cleared. I had a project that went through. Uh, our institutional review board at my university and the institutional review board that went through at the state of Michigan. And I, who study jails and prisons, didn't know that there was another form that I had to fill out before I could go see my brother. There, there, there are contingencies upon contingencies. And then when you get there, it just so happened that every guard I interacted with just about in, in, in the Michigan Department of Corrections, this doesn't mean that every guard's a good guard, obviously, you know, there are many, many, many stories. But every guard I interacted with was kind. I was blessed in that way. It was, it was really quite remarkable, you know, because my interactions were typically with folks who were handling visitation. It was typically with folks who were at the desk. And, and for whatever reason, I just had the luck of the draw. Every time I showed up, you know, if I forgot a quarter, you know, the guard would give me a quarter. If I, if I, if I, if I, if I, uh, if I well, let's take this quarter example. If I forgot a quarter, I didn't get change. A gas station is 10 miles away from the prison. I just happened to not have a quarter. The guard would give me a quarter. If the guard didn't give me a quarter. I would have no place to put my keys or my phone or my stuff, which would mean I couldn't visit because I didn't have a quarter. This, 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 this is the kind of this is the kind of a quarter for the locker. This is the this is the kind of these are the kinds of contingencies. These are the kinds of uh, 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 this, this is the kind of precarity that gets introduced. It seems like a small thing. I happened to in engage with really nice guards almost every time I visited uh, to see my brother. Now, not every time I moved through to do my research or whatever the situation is. Most guards were very nice, though, by when I was doing my research. But your entire day hinges on the day that the guard is having. Any one of those guards can tell you to leave. Any that's one of that's true for incarcerated people, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's, that's very true.
Oh, no, absolutely. It's a whole literature on, on something called secondary prisonization, in, in which the, the, the this comes from one of my mentors, uh, Megan Comfort, uh, where she she follows people in the visiting room. And what she finds is that families are subjected to many of the things that people who are inside. The fact that any one of those guards can make your day a terrible day because your dress is a little too short and the guy decided to look because 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 uh, you you said the wrong thing at the wrong time. Because you stood in the wrong line, the you know, of the 17 lines you have to stand in when you're trying to collect property or drop off things or or or, or, or visit or whatever it is the situation. Uh, any one of these people have control over your day. Well, that's that's on the inside. And on the outside, any any number of people have complete control over your day. The landlord can evict you if your loved one visits. The probation or parole officer can fail the visitation site, can say this person can't stay here if they have a dog in, in the premises, if that probation or parole officer is having a bad day, you're, you're, you're uh, put at the whim of, of, of other people and, and the person with the record who has to check in with the probation. Or parole. You know, th 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 there are rumors about which probation or parole officers are terrible probation or parole officers who will violate you for any reason at all. There are rumors about the good ones. And, and, and you hope that you get one that's that's not a bad one. But either way it goes, when you check in with them, you hope they're not having a bad day because their day determines your freedom. And, 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 and this is the situation that we've produced for people with criminal records, for family members who, who are bearing the brunt of the of the financial cost and of the emo and do all of this emotional labor uh, to support the people they love. You wrote, the people I met told me without fail the police didn't come when they needed them, but they were there when they smoked a joint or sold a few rocks or turned a trick to get out of a bad situation. This too is the afterlife of slavery, that is to say the afterlife of mass incarceration. You are over-policed and under-protected. The police don't come when you call them, and when they do show up, they beat your ass because they come only when you're being arrested. Uh, I think, you know, this week, you know, we're recording this during the Chauvin trial, so it seems uh, important to ask you this question. Uh, now, a lot of people believe, unfor or fortunately or unfortunately, policing works fine because they generally aren't directly impacted. Given everything we've seen since George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about the potential for changing hearts and minds, which is a bit about what this book is about? I feel optimistic about changing hearts and minds. Um, I feel uh, because because the, the change that I'm asking for is the change that is the kind of change that my dear brother Ronald Simpson Bay calls for, which is an ethical commitment to 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 people. I think we've learned to be afraid of, and I think that shifting political winds have made that possible. So while uh, Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd, and we we all saw it, and, and while they're in in this attorneys are trying their best to say that George Floyd died because he had a weak heart and he only got the knee on his neck because he had that big black body. That weak heart and that big black body were the things that, that, that did George Floyd in, not the, not the knee on his neck that literally choked the life out of him that we watched on camera for nine minutes and 29 seconds. While that's going on, I remember the summer when millions of people came out all around the world in response to the police violence, to the murder, to the mistreatment of black people that we've seen. And while our Asian brothers and sisters are under direct assault in ways that are more visible than they've been before, because it's always been this way. Look, 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 look at any of your, your, your brothers and sisters' Twitter feeds. They will tell you, when I was in school, they ridiculed me, they beat me up, they treated me this way. I've been subject to violence all my life. They'll say that, but we're paying attention. And the thing that gives me hope are, 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 are the vigils and the fact that people are coming out and standing with and taking bystander training and learning. In other words, there is a movement, but there's a counter move. There's a, there, there, there's a, there's a movement of repression, of police violence, of, of blame. We live through an entire era of it. The tough on crime era, the rise of mass incarceration, the disproportionate of uh, uh, incarceration of people that we've learned to be afraid of, people we learned to ignore. There's a counter move. Every move, there's always a counter move, and that counter move is powerful. And that's that's why I have hope. So so I hope that uh, my book raises different kinds of questions for people about what the system does, what it is and what it does. And I hope that I've shown um, new things that help us in the ways that we think about 
how to build a world in which the people we've learned to be afraid of might belong, whether we remain afraid of them or not. I hope that the book does some of that work, but I hope that that book does some of that work uh, in tandem with the work that's already being done. All these people in the streets, all these people who are speaking out, and these are people across racial and ethnic groups. These are people across uh, categories of age. These are people across regions, not just in the United States, but in, but 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 across the entire world, and, and that gives me hope. A lot of the book, uh, you know, there's a lot of interviews in the book. There's a lot of things that a lot of people you talk to, but really uh, the book is kind of telling your story. Your family has been deeply impacted by America's criminal punishment system. After all that you've experienced, all the research, all the prisons, all the, you know, all the things that you've gone through, did you find writing the book cathartic, painful, frustrating, all of the above? Where do you find yourself now? You know, uh, now I'm grateful that the book is being received. While I was writing the book, there were some chapters that were harder to write than others. And there were some moments in each of the chapters that, that was a little harder to write than others. Um, but there's real beauty, I hope, that came through in each of the chapters, where there are moments of connection in each of the chapters among each of the people that I follow. Connections one to another, connections with brothers, sisters, pastors, aunts, cousins, girlfriends, grandmothers, lovers. Uh, and those really, those really not only made the writing feel more important to me, um, gave me a sense of urgency in, in, in trying to produce the book, uh, but they carried me, you know, they, they carried me. The, the, the fellowship um, with the folks in the book, with me and the folks in the book, my brother, not just my brother, because he shows up in about a third of the but, but with all the brothers and sisters who I followed in the had a deep connection with each of them and, and, and their friendships and our bond sustain me and the bonds that they had with others in their lives who love them despite the circumstances they faced uh, sustain me. And there's some victories in the book too. There's some victories in the book too that also, that also sustain me. Uh, this year I'm asking people if there are any criminal justice related books they might recommend to others. Do you have any personal favorites right now? I do. Um, there's a book that'll be out shortly called Breathing Fire by Jamie Lowe. Uh, that's about uh, women firefighters who uh, in, in, in California. It's a powerful book. It'll be out in, in a month or two. Um, there's a brilliant book by Michael Walker, a sociologist that's going to come out next year uh, called Indefinite, Doing Time in Jail. It is a, it is a powerful, fantastic, uh, important, urgent book. And there's another book that'll be out in June, perhaps uh, shortly after this book is published, that's about uh, the ways that we commemorate or forget about slavery uh, by Clint Smith called How the Word is Passed. These are powerful books, but there are also some, some, some oldies and, and goodies um, that, that I think are worth revisiting. Waverly Duck's brilliant book called No Way Out uh, is about drug markets. Uh, uh, in, 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 in the Northeast about the, the, the ways that people work very hard to, to get out. And of course, uh, my dear brother, John Eason's fantastic book, Big House on the Prairie, which you, you had him on the show. It's definitely worth people revisiting the podcast. And lastly, um, a plug for Megan Comfort's timeless uh, ethnography of, 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 of the visiting room uh, at San Quentin, the tube uh, of family uh, in the shadow of mass incarceration called Doing Time Together, Love and Family uh, in, in the Shadow of Mass Incarceration. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, so these, these, are, these are some wonderful books that, that, I, that, I, that, I, that I've been able to sit with and that I go back to over and over. I always ask the same last question. What did I mess up? What question should I have asked but did not? Uh, nothing. You didn't mess up a thing. <laughs> and, and I'm, and I'm so oh, happy. no. <laughs> I always mess something up. <laughs> I'm glad to, 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 to join you today. Well, thanks so much uh, for doing this. And, uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, it really glad, great to have you on again. And uh, love the book. Oh, thanks, Josh. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. And now, my take. I said at the very beginning that Ruben is a friend, and he is a friend. This was one of the first times I've read a book where almost every single person discussed in the book was someone I knew personally, and many of the people in the book are people I consider to be personal friends. 
It was a sad and wonderful journey to learn even more about their stories and to be reminded of stories that I knew but had not thought about in a few years. But one thing throughout reading this book and in talking with Ruben about the book really stood out for me. I am so lucky to be part of this community of formerly incarcerated people in the United States of America. We have all been through something so traumatic and unbelievable, and yet so many of us have come back stronger, and so many are doing amazing work to make a difference, to help their communities, to make our country a better place. I am so lucky to know so many of these men and women who were totally written off and refused to be written off, who shake their fists at the world and insist not only that they matter, but also that they are valuable members of their community and of this country, despite the crimes they committed earlier in their lives. I am so lucky to be part of this community, but let's not ignore that for so many more, the struggle is still real. We still have many more people incarcerated than any other country on earth. We still have prison and reentry systems totally focused on all the wrong things, ensuring that people come back with little hope, mired deep in criminal justice debt, and with little hope of finding housing or getting a decent job. We have accomplished so much in the last 10 years, but we still have so much left to do. So much left to do. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who have joined us from Patreon or have given a donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways. I say this every single week, but uh, it would be nice if you want to leave a five-star review on iTunes or add us on Stitcher, Spotify, or from your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, and Espo for helping with our transcripts and our images, and Alex Mayo, Alex Mayo, who helps with our website. Make sure and add us on social media and share our posts across your networks. Also, thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much to listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.